Hi, my name is Jane Walton Brown and I work as an emotional health practitioner. It's just blending different roles into one. I work as a school counsellor at a secondary school and at a sixth form. I also work one day a week at a primary school, which is quite fun. And that's working more as a family support worker and delivering what I'd call kind time and working with the family. And obviously, as you can imagine, particularly young children, there's a lot of kind of separation anxiety and just completely different sometimes um, presenting issues compared to, to secondary school and sixth form students. And then I have my own business called Flourish and Flourish is where we deliver training to adults about mental health in children and young people, also kind of staff wellbeing sessions. And I kind of travel Well, I used to travel more so now virtual, but it's about school assemblies, PSHE workshops. And I started a YouTube channel back last year. So, yeah. talking and you said that you were like an emotional practitioner I was like oh great tell me more about what that is and then you told her a little bit more about what that is and I was like oh no tell me less about what that is that, that there's so much stuff there that I want to ask about um so working with both children and their families mm-hmm. um that sounds really messy and really complicated to me um how, how does that work I think being like an external figure that's not necessarily a member of the school staff I think that actually that allows you that sense of allowing the parents to kind of just have that little bit more engagement because you're not a teacher and and I think that's why it works sometimes so often when you're working with the parents you do get that kind of raw or the, the emotion or that the helplessness and I and I, I really do believe that that's sometimes the best thing to be kind of that that middle figure between kind of the school and the parent or the family and and you said about getting that sort of like I suppose realness from 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 parents and sort of being that middle ground um is is that sometimes something that that you find that parents are just really uncomfortable sharing real things with children yeah and you know what I'm a mum to a seven-year-old and I know personally that the person that I am on the school gate compared to the person at home is just completely different and it's it's been so much harder being a parent you know certainly during the, the pandemic and then also kind of being that family support worker and it, it's amazing because I can I can give really good guidance sometimes but it's it doesn't necessarily work for when I need to give it to myself um, which is just a classic but I feel that that's the thing at the moment with parents is that there's this sense of you know togetherness with parents but I feel that there's this worry that sometimes they're kind of being compared or as if they're not doing enough certainly during the pandemic when we had kind of home home learning I think there was a lot going on there so yeah it's it's tricky for parents and, and carers yeah, I think that's something that we've spoken to a few family-based um, practitioners um, and, and practitioners who work within a family setting or where, the, where there's challenges in a family setting. And that's something that has come across in, in all of those conversations, that being a parent and being a practitioner are two different things. Um, and I think for our audience, a lot of who work in early years education, sometimes it's really difficult for professionals to see that, you know, because... Because no, no early years professional wants to say, I don't know what to do with my three-year-old. Um, so it's really, I suppose, reassuring um, yeah. to hear a, 
a practitioner who who works specifically in that arena, helping both adults and children to talk about their emotions and and I suppose not just talk about them because to talk about them you have to be able to recognise them. Yeah, most definitely. Um, but that it's really reassuring to hear that you also have that conversation with yourself. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. And I think that sometimes it's, you know, certainly working at a school myself, I get to speak to to the teachers that are parents and they 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 really beat themselves up about certainly about the home learning, you know, that having to be at home, some of them having their own children at home and having to, to do that home learning as well as being a teacher. And um, I had a particular colleague that was really harsh on herself because she had this worry and this expectation from her child's teacher that she'd be absolutely able to nail it and it's not easy it's not easy and working with with the young children since I've come back obviously since the schools have opened back in March there's just such a variety of of what particularly young people at primary school are struggling with and I think this is what will be entertaining um, is the way that we kind of adapt and, and move towards that because it's just about the importance of early intervention. That That is just the important thing when it comes to, to looking after their emotional well-being. So, yeah. so, so when you talk about early intervention, I think that, that's really tricky for a lot of people to think mm-hmm. about because it, it can feel a little bit like, like cracking a, a walnut with a hammer, you know, that whole... Like when do you when do you do something? When do you talk to somebody? Um, and and when do you sort of give children specifically, but I suppose anybody, just the space to be able to to figure it out mm-hmm. and let them know that you're there. Um, when when does that become clearer? I think I've got two different hats on. I think as a parent. I feel that sometimes we're worried about if we're doing it right, are we being firm enough with boundaries and rules and expectations? Are we being soft enough for them to kind of have a a space where they can express their emotions in a good way, in a healthy way, even if it's an anger outburst, allowing them to have that opportunity to go upstairs and raw you know providing they're not trashing their room but allowing them to express that rather than suppress it you know if we can imagine as adults what anger feels like and whether you're somebody that suffers with road rage or whether you're somebody that's you know struggles with patience of queuing and things like that it's it's hard to have that sense of 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 trying to keep our patience but also not letting it go obviously we can regulate our emotions a little bit better but I think anger is quite a scary emotion for, for children. You know, this raw, this red mist, this wanting to just physically for some children lash out, not because they want to, but just because it's so immense and so big. So I feel that if we can kind of ideally this partnership, which is what school is all about, you know, I feel that there's so much expectation on nurseries and 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 primary schools to kind of be more of a parent than a a school and a teacher when actually it's a partnership it's a partnership and it can only work if if there's that sense of togetherness so I try and encourage the parents at home to talk about their feelings you know to be a role model so 
if you've had a bad day as a parent, they, they come home and go, do you know what? It was really tricky today, you know, and throw some scenarios like so-and-so didn't want to talk to me today at work. So I just went and spoke to somebody else. I felt a bit upset, but it was all right, actually, because I got to speak to to make a new friend or something. And I think that if we can just encourage, you know, I love dinner time because just that sense of togetherness or movie night, even if it's once a month or even there's this kind of going for a walk and taking the dog for a walk once a week. As parents, if we can do that and as a school, as, as, as teachers, as practitioners, if we can provide that opportunity where we educate our children about feelings and where we do teach them mindfulness and actually sometimes we need to slow down and you know, relaxed kids have some fantastic stories. Um, and to just have that, you know, five things that you can hear, you know, and, and just that sense of you're not on your own. And, and most importantly, and this goes for secondary or school as well, is for, for them to realise that it's okay not to be okay. I had one particular um, pupil who the parent had um, had overheard um, this little girl asking, um, Alexa, I've got to make sure that mine doesn't go off. Alexa, um, how can I be happy? How do I make myself happy? And the parent was absolutely distraught. And I get that. But equally, all she's doing is trying to explore, you know, how do I make myself happy? Because maybe there's this expectation that she should be happy all the time. And that's not always possible. So that's what's tricky sometimes. Yeah, and I think um it was it was quite nice to to see um like Disney Pixar type addressing that in 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 um what's it called that film Inside um, Out that one um and I think we are starting to see more of an awareness of that whole like idea that it is okay to show people yeah. that that yeah not all right um and to seek that sort of I suppose like support from the herd or the flock you know like and, and that sort of strength in numbers thing um but it, it's strange that you mentioned like relaxed kids and the way that works one of um, our subject specialists Stacey um was a, a relaxed kids coach or is a relaxed kids coach but in a, in a previous like that was what she did um and speaking to Stacey for the podcast made me really think about some things from sort of my childhood or just just growing up in general and how in my family, we're terrible at letting people see that we're hurt or that we're upset and that it's all hidden. And there's this sort of, well, I have to be okay so yeah. that the kids are okay. And I think that obviously is not just a my family thing. That's a lots of family thing. But yeah. It's the idea that you've got to be okay so that they're okay. That's but it. I wonder how many more kids are going to start turning to Alexa or to to, to faceless technology I suppose where it's a little bit less confrontational yeah. To yeah I think so because there's so many going up to the older ones there's so many charities out there there's Cooth, which is is postcode depending there's Shout UK there's Childline which are they're, they're so great to offer that support um, but obviously they need to be at an age where they can do that so that's where I think that it kind of comes down to the school in that that being able to support the early years um, and recognising when they're not OK. And it's it's kind of just trying to find out. And, and I do believe that, you know, 
kind of how they they say goodbye to their parent in the morning and their carer compared to you know how they settle at school you know that kind of that attachment theory I think that can be sometimes really interesting I have a parent at the moment that will come into school at lunchtime to to check on her child does that little one need it no no that that child doesn't need it that that child you know says goodbye at the school gate yes there's there's you know you can see that they're not happy um gets into school gives them some time in the nurture room and then we've got this sense of kind of calm when we have a a lunchtime visit and the and the 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 mother is going are you okay then guess what no because I much rather be at home with with you so you can kind of understand how hard it can be you know when there maybe isn't such a strong partnership between the two but then that's hard because as a parent I can understand that you're going to want to check in with your child and it's just hard it's just and I, I remember I went through a bit of a phase when I was I don't know 12 13 I was a little bit of a naughty girl um yeah in year eight and nine bit of a naughty girl and then turned it around come year 11 um got head girl not too sure how but I remember when I was going through that stage and I remember like my mum shouting at me just going you know there's no bible there's no kind of guidance in how to be a parent now kind of fast forward a few years there's loads of books isn't there in how to be the perfect parent However, the moral of the story is that parents are also different, also different carers. They they do it differently. And it's about having to find what works for your child, works for your family. Um, and then hopefully kind of incorporating that working with the school. Again, there's loads in the, the, the things you just said that I want to talk about. And I'm probably going to miss loads of them by talking about the first one. And then you'll see loads of more interesting things that I want to talk about. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that you talked about there was that idea that obviously like all parents are different and yes there's lots of books and lots of guidance and lots of how-to guides on how to do it and I am not a parent it's not something that I mean I'm, I'm it sounds weird but I'm lucky um because my sister was a very young parent and therefore I got to experience some of the bits of parenthood early enough to know that I'm not set up for that um and that it's not for me um but and um, when you were talking um I had a realisation recently um, about resilience and about um, how it's really easy because there's lots of guides on how to do things um, and how stuff works and, and how you can become the best at all the things that if I'm not good at something when I first try it yeah. or a situation is difficult the first time I encounter it, I decide that I'm just not very good at that thing and I try yeah. never to do it again. And I think I've recently gotten involved with farming and like there's loads of guides on how to grow plants and there's loads of guides on how to look after sheep and there's loads of guides on how to keep sheep away from getting stuck in fences. But actually in the real world, all of those things are just plans to sort of give you some ideas and to, to, to get back to. It's an in a perfect world. This is how this situation might unfold. And here's some tools but it's only in those really real situations when you're working with like living things that obviously you're going they're not always going to work because 
they're not always everything's not always going to line up perfectly the way that that guide wants it no. to no. and it's frustrating because we can't just walk away from it you can't just leave the sheep to do their thing yeah, and not so get stuck in fences and you can't just hope that the plants will seed themselves and grow and you can't just like the kids will just be all right and I have because you have to just keep trying even when you feel like you're not getting it or you're not very good at it and that can be really hard because we're so used to just being able to go well someone else can do that but like I'll pay someone to do the decorating because I'm not very good at it or like he can change the plug because I've got no idea what I'm doing you know like and Whereas we used to have to figure all this stuff out because the information wasn't as easily accessible on the how-to. We had to do all the things where we figured it out the first time and it was wrong and we had to like try a different way. And I wonder whether that's part of the problem that there's so many guides and how-tos and it looks dead easy because someone's got a YouTube channel showing their perfect little family life. life. And And I wonder whether that is why we get so frustrated and and sort of blame ourselves for things now yeah as opposed to the opposite reason like because there's so much stuff yeah. rather than so little does that make sense yeah without a doubt and I think that what we sometimes do you know you know out there those parents and carers that certainly the early years as parent and carers we so often compare ourselves to other mums or compare our child and I've got I've, I've got one child and I always say <laughs> I've got one and done so then you don't have that awkward conversation of oh when are you having your next one or you know oh you can't just have one because genuinely people do say that um but gosh the amount of things that I used to worry about when he you know like at one point I thought he had meningitis and it wasn't it was just a heat rash um he wasn't crawling as quick as other people um, his first tooth didn't fall out as quick as other people when he was about five, six. So then I was thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, what's the problem with his teeth? You, do you know what I mean? You just constantly. And and also I feel for, for, for parents and carers that are working because there's also that guilt. But then I also feel for those parents that are stay at home parents because then there's not that almost that getaway without sounding too harsh. So in life, it's all about getting this balance. And and it is exactly what you're saying, almost learning as you go along. That's the only way that I can describe it. And it's there's nothing that can prepare you for it. And that's like you taking on a new job or something like that. There's there's only so much you can do. But actually, it's about learning as you go along. And it's about being real. I think that's one thing that I've realized as I've, I've, I've kind of I don't know if it's had more experience of being a counsellor and and flourish growing but it's about realizing that actually there's only so much we can do and it's about and I say this like it's really easy okay so just admire me saying this because it's not as easy as that but sometimes we just have to trust the process sometimes we just have to trust ourselves and actually follow our heart with with what feels right at the time that it's about asking who you're doing it for so yeah. who benefits from this without a doubt is it them or is it me and I sort of try and employ that in all interactions so if someone asks me for my help at work does it help them for me to do it for them if I've done it yeah. for them two times already or actually is it helping me because I just don't want the confrontation of saying 
I'll teach you how to do it and then because I can't keep doing it like who who does this who does this benefit if this is how I approach this situation yeah and I think that's sometimes the, the the hardest thing about getting that balance you know and it's not easy it's it's just not easy but yeah it's a, it's a tricky one and it's about learning as you go along without a doubt um people think about huffy children or huffy adults um as storming off in a huff um but for me that's not what I'm doing when I take myself off somewhere else I'm removing myself from a situation to to have time to reflect on it to come Mm -hmm. back with some you know actual useful analysis or you know like a next step um and I just don't have the the words to be able to explain that in the moment because someone else is in a different place to me because they want to talk about it now Mm -hmm. um and I wonder whether that sort of asking someone if they're okay is that sort of needling to to bring somebody back from what is perceived as a huff but is actually a I need some space yeah that does because one of my so I'm an MHFA trainer um but actually for Flourish we actually do quite a lot of um training of, of of how to handle those tricky conversations because if you've got and and I say a, a teenager or you know somebody at college or sixth form but actually I had a, a had a, a somebody a, a pupil a few weeks ago age nine possibly eight who said that he didn't want to be here anymore so what I feel that we have to do is we have to have the confidence to have these conversations but for some people and I'll go with with my husband in particular bless his heart I say that yeah I do mean bless his heart um but he is ex-army and he just does not get it he just feels that we need to man up grow a pair you know act like a man act like a woman act your age you know and I kind of try to explain to him that that's not necessarily what it's like that might be for you but actually that's not necessarily what other people would want to hear and I think that's why I try and encourage you know you don't necessarily need to ask a question and I'll give you a good example when my granddad died um one of my best friends, she she sent me a message and she was like, hi, chick, how are you? How are the funeral plans coming along? I replied, hi, hun. Yeah, funeral plans coming along nicely. And she replied, bless her. That's good. But you didn't let me know how you are. And I just remember throwing my phone on the bed. And I just remember thinking, I don't know how I'm feeling. So I think sometimes it's about encouraging with our colleagues or or kind of encouraging the younger generation to realise that actually just checking in with somebody, just saying, I hope you're okay. I'm here if you need me. Hope you're having a good day. Just something where they don't necessarily feel as if they need to reply, but there's that opportunity that they know that they're thought of. And it's trying to trying to get kids to realise that it's not you don't have to be okay all the time it's okay not to be okay but sometimes it's not okay if you're not prepared to do anything about it so that's why it's kind of just encouraging that that open door policy you know at schools and if we can get that from a really young age then that that's spot on but it's about 
allowing kids to know that they've got a space to be heard and and ideally we'd love for that to be at home but not all kids have that at home not all kids have that space at home and you know we talk about kids that go home and they're on their phones social media gaming but also what we've got to do is sometimes imagine that for some kids it's just escapism where they can actually get away from the world that might be a bit too hard right now yeah, and I think um, I, I, I identify with that quite a lot because thinking about my childhood, it wasn't necessarily that home wasn't safe to talk. It was that home was my safe place. And therefore, that's not where I wanted to talk about any of this. I wanted it to still be the place that everything felt OK. Yeah. It was scary, actually, to think about making myself vulnerable in that space because that was the only place I could be me does that make sense sometimes people feel guilty for feeling good about bad things even when there's been like happy things like I mean it's difficult to talk about like good things that have come from the recent situation that we've all been in like because you feel bad for having without yeah without a doubt and I think a good example of that is going when a child goes through a bereavement you know, whether that's a grandparent, an aunt, you know, best friend, like whoever it is, parent care, there's this sense of, you know, everyone else is crying, maybe I should be crying. And even this week, I had a, a pupil, 10 years old, family member died, and she was saying everybody else is is, is crying. And I, I, I'm not crying. And I was trying to explain to her, just because you're not necessarily crying on the outside, doesn't mean that you're not crying on the inside and this this sense of relief um and also I think kids feel this sense that you know if you're feeling sad and if you're missing a loved one then they almost feel guilty that they're laughing with their friends about something else and it's just about that recognition that that's okay yeah that, that's okay just kids I think that there'll be a lot of grown-ups maybe grown-ups I was just about to say grown-ups too who are, yeah. who are say, who, who very much identify with that or the the clash of sort of the if I, if, I, if I want to talk about sad things like people that will love dying you know like that lead up to people maybe maybe going where you know there's that I hope it happens quickly or you know and there's that guilt around feeling something that might not be something you'd verbalize but you'd still feel it and and sometimes I think what it is is if we're not talking about it, we're carrying it. And that's why I think it's really important, even as adults, that we have, and, and, and for those people that work in health and social care or the childcare industry, you know, education, you know, when we're, when we're working with other people, their emotions, their physical health, their mental health, you know, it's a really big job. And I feel that sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit where actually we are paid to care for others we are paid to maybe educate or in whatever way it might be these these people into the world and that that's an incredible job that sometimes I don't think that we give ourselves enough recognition for just what we're doing and that and I'm all about that professional love because so many people say to me, you know, oh, Joe, I need to get go on a course. I need to do this. I need to do that. You know, I'm not a mental health expert like you. And it's just like, hold up. Like, you do not need to be a mental health expert to be a really good practitioner, a really good teacher. 
All you need to do is have these really good boundaries that are flexible but firm and have this sense of offering this this kindness, this ability, this place, this space where you're safe enough, where you can talk to me about your feelings. And, and that professional love is exactly what we need. Those 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 members of staff, those those trainees to realise the importance of. And that actually, if we can do that together, just like safeguarding, if we can have this, this ability to realise that actually, providing that we can offer listening where we are fully with that that child fully with that young person fully with that adult we're not fidgeting we're not on our phones we're not you know when we do that kind of talk whilst we're on the computer you know I'm I'm listening no if we can actually really be with them have instead of body language instead of our, our body position being face on maybe to have a bit of a, a slant kind of a bit side on Ideally, if it's a child or a young person, to maybe make sure that our eye contact is on the same level, if not below. And if we're actually able to kind of make that gentle eye contact, not staring at them, but that, just that gentle eye contact, then that is providing that that space, that place where they feel heard, where even if they don't want to offload right there, right then, at least you've created that space where you can, where they can do if they wanted to. Yeah, and it's just and so powerful. Do you think that with that sort of safe offloading space, that's one of the reasons that that practitioners who do have that that safe space are likely more likely to get a a sort of s- someone telling them something that that's vulnerable than than that child might be to share at home or might be where there might be behaviour elsewhere that will communicate with practitioners because. Like, like I was talking about before about that space, safe space yeah. at home that you're used to being challenged in that mm. learning environment and that practitioner pushing you or sort of yeah you're sort of used to making yourself vulnerable to teachers yeah. because you're used to not being good at things in front of them because they're teaching mm. you stuff so it might make it easier to to make yourself vulnerable to be able to have those conversations yeah. Maybe with someone who, whose opinion you might care a little bit more about in the long term, if that makes sense. I love how watching TV nowadays, watching soaps, watching things like Love Island and Guilty Pleasure is watching that, even that's a bit shocking at times. Um, but I love it when we get to see men cry. I love it when we get to see people actually almost kind of break down with it all being too much because I feel that that gives permission and one of my my things certainly with Charlie seven years old is that it's okay to cry now Phil's first reaction would be like why are you crying like man up and I've heard him say that you know grow up and I'm like oh my gosh that's a seven-year-old that's a seven-year-old and do you think that that's do you think that that's not necessarily because he doesn't know how to handle his emotions because obviously he's been through a, a system which has trained him to handle his, hand his emotions in a certain way but that because he has those frameworks and those tools that he yeah. uses to regulate his emotions just built in and sorted because he was trained on how to do that without that he doesn't necessarily say that other people don't just know how to do those things yeah. automatically and that actually we need to be taught how to properly process our emotions and to 
put them into the places they need to be so that we can then come back to them later and that that's I suppose the same privilege as rich people not understanding how people are poor does, does that make sense yeah and I think that when it comes to those conversations when it with regards to, to mental health if we don't know what to say then we won't say anything at all when actually just that register of you know I hope you're okay is actually just sometimes that that piece of gold dust in somebody realizing that they're not on their own um going with secondary school is it's kind of and primary school in fairness and colleges in sixth form their behavior is such a good indicator of how they're feeling and there's this quote um those that need the most love will ask for it in the most unloving ways and that's so true it's so true and sometimes those feelings that they they have just cannot be expressed and you know reality check is there is an increase um of self-harm there is an increase of of those attempting to take their own life and actually dying by suicide that you know there is this struggle with regards to to the younger generation so it is about that kind of that permission and about that and it's tough because times are changing you know if we look at the mental like children's mental health act and and kind of the the policies from you know, the 80s and how they've started to gather momentum. And now with the government, you know, they are coming out now. They're starting to really get there. Is there still work to be done? Yes. But are we in a better position than we were 20 years ago? Oh, my days, yes. So it's about that traction and about that realisation that actually these these little people, you know, need the support. And I just wish in a way that we could measure early intervention you almost want the same child that's having that kind time at school you know that that ability to to talk to their favorite teacher at school whether that's primary secondary or college have that support compared to going throughout their their school life without that and seeing how they are in adulthood you know it would be so good to, to to see the difference but you cannot measure early intervention and obviously that's what Ofsted want isn't it is they want those those measurements of, of how do you kind of measure the success of any intervention is so hard it is so hard and, and I think that's true of all data exercises in things it's impossible mm. to measure things just from the outcomes because yes. you can't measure all of the inputs you can't measure everything about people's barriers before they enter a situation. I used to work in welfare to work and and that was the argument that obviously all of my colleagues and myself would make about um, outcomes from job starts Mm. and things from people who needed lots of support with the best will in the world. If someone has nowhere to live, it doesn't really matter how many job search skills you give them. they're, They're at a much bigger disadvantage than other people who are looking for work not just because they have to explain why they don't have an address to their employer or any of the actual physical barriers that you can measure that that puts in place but because there's so much more going on in their head and in their heart and in all of the places that you need to be fully present to be able to interview for a job to be that it's difficult to navigate day-to-day situations that you might otherwise find quite easy you know it can be hard to to do normal day-to-day things when you're not in the right 
place yeah. to be able to tackle them. And I think sometimes there is this weird, like, I suppose, expectation that, oh, well, people can, if that's easy, people can do that. Like, mm-hmm. like if, you, if you're applying for benefits, you know, if yeah. you're applying for benefits, it's dead easy to fill the form in for job seekers allowance. It's as long as you can use a computer and you can write any, you know, you can you can fill in the form for job seekers yeah. allowance. But actually, if you're filling that form in because the person you care for has just died and there's all of this other stuff going on. And actually, even just the idea of going to the website to fill this form in or you've lost yeah. the job that you've had for a long time. And, you know, it, it's it's not just the things you can measure going into that. So just measuring outcomes doesn't give you the data. It just gives you a, a data gap. And yeah. we make assumptions based on the data that we do have that then the measures don't help the people that were already being left behind. Yeah. And I also think that the sad thing about, you know, in particular, I had a five year old that their anxiety was is was so bad. It's as if they were riddled with this anxiety. So I'm not just talking about that, that stress that anxiousness I'm talking about you know that anxiety disorder that generalized anxiety disorder but the thing is though you do a referral to down in Essex we call it uh, OOMS so emotional well-being mental health services um I think around the country it's normally under CAMS child and mental health services and you put your heart and soul into getting a really good referral, you know, really jam packing it, why they need that additional support. And certainly working as a counsellor, it's really hard to realise that actually that that particular student, that pupil needs more than what I can give them as a professional. And then what you realise is actually that they don't meet the threshold. And I just think that people don't realise actually how that must feel. So we're basically saying to a child, you know, you're not poorly enough. You are your mind, even though it's bad. Guess what? It's not. It's not poorly enough. It's not. It's, your life isn't bad enough. And it's like, hang on a minute. But I feel that there are, and and this is the good thing about the green paper that's that's coming in, um, the transforming children's and young people's lives. I think it's 2024, 2025. Yeah, yeah, 2025. I think it's in by, but about providing more support in school because at at my secondary school I had back in March a waiting list of 34 kids that's 34 kids that needed me right then and the problem is that I'm holding on to some students that are currently on the waiting list for ooms so I can't let them go because they need that support equally I want to start seeing you know, my current caseload, which would be 10 students over two days, you know, I want to start seeing all of these kids, but you can't. And then what you have to do is you have to realise that there's the teachers out there, there's the the other professionals that are listening or working with or, or kind of trying their hardest to support these kids that are on the waiting list. So, and that's why you can realise that importance of of empowering adults, empowering professionals, teachers, um, early year experts to kind of realise the importance of of being able to have the confidence to manage those tricky conversations. Yeah, with that confidence that what you're doing is okay and the way that you're having those conversations is okay. That sounds great. 
I have got a million other things that I'd love to ask you, um, but I've got a feeling that if I start on the next bit of conversation that that we'll go into a whole other hour um, and it might be better if we think about maybe talking again in the future. I like the idea of that. Um, I love the idea of that. Thank you very, very much for your time today. Mm-hmm.